episode 162 of the Throwdown Thursday podcast. My name is Patrick Rahal, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd, and we are broadcasting live from the Pat Cave in Magenta Manor. And uh, also, we have to mention that we are part of the Dorkening Network and brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee, because once you go deadly, you don't don't go go back. back. Yeah, that's what it says in the ad, which you'll hear later on after our first break. But uh, I, like I said, am Patsy the Angry Nerd, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host on the show and the co-host in life. She is the real housewife of Transylvania, the mistress of Merlot, the Michael Phelps of wine, and the queen of the monsters. Ladies and gentlemen, Ashes Von Nightmare. When I wear my new headphones, I'm a unicorn. You are a unicorn, and they light up and and flash. And they're flashy, flashy. And we are joined today by director, filmmaker all-around horror fan, uh, Derek Dennis Herbert. Derek, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for joining us. Um, <clears throat> so like I uh, was explaining off-air, we, we do a little segment called Getting Into Character where we try to get to know you and let the audience know who you are a little bit uh, by asking you some, like I, like I said, you know, like first date questions. So are you ready for your uh, Getting Into Character? Yeah, let's go. All right. So the first question I have is, do you have any hidden hobbies that maybe, you know, the general public isn't aware of? Like maybe you, uh, you know, you're a dynamite knitter or you, you know, you're a, uh, a an origami master. Is there anything that you do in your free time that you really enjoy that maybe people don't know? I wish I was a, a great knitter. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Right? Me uh, too. I, I do I do sing uh, in, in my spare time. That's something that people that know me know, but they don't necessarily. The general public doesn't necessarily know yet. Uh, I have a three and a half octave vocal range, Ooh. so I can I can sing uh, anything from baritone up through tenor. So that's impressive. Thanks. <clears throat> yeah, that is a uh, that is definitely something that's cool. Like you know, everybody like. Oh, yeah, you know, I like to sing in the car and do this, but it's like to actually have some sort of range, because I do not, so (laughs) more power to you, man. It's okay. My, for some reason, I don't know where I got it from. Like, my dad has an okay singing voice. My mom cannot sing from her own admission, but, like, we used to record these uh, family music videos that I put together during the holidays, uh, and... My mom's lines would always be like just one heavily auto-tuned garage band <laughs> uh, because she just, for the life of her, can't get. Even though she has these little sing songs, she sings all the time, perfectly on key. The minute she tries to sing something on key, it like goes up in one ear and out the other, and it is hilarious. And she's a great sport about it. She always wanted to keep participating. So I'm I'm happy that she didn't get upset with us all jokingly making fun of her, but she was joking with us right along the way. So it was a lot of fun. So I want to know, what was your favorite cartoon as a child? That's a good question. Um, Probably Rugrats, actually. Oh, that's a good one. I love Rugrats. I actually went to, I grew up in Connecticut, and they brought to, like, I think it was the Oakdale Center, so one of the one of the, like big like performance places. They brought 
It's called Rugrats Alive Adventure. <gasps> oh my god, I saw that! <laughs> I, I remember seeing that and, and loving it. It was so much fun. They had the actual voice actors up, on, up above the uh, stage, so they would sing live, and underneath them would be like these like giant characters in costumes and stuff. So it was a lot of fun, especially as a kid, to see the voice actors singing and performing live while seeing the adventure play out. But yeah, I always loved Rugrat. I still every like Christmas time and I watch like the Christmas special. It's it's one of those shows that like really had never lost its its joy for me. I mean, I feel like there's a, a few of them that other shows I'm missing. Uh, Back to the Future TV show and stuff, but like Rugrats was the one that always stuck. It still sticks with me. Did you have a favorite Rugrat? Tommy. Okay. Tommy. But I did enjoy them all. I mean, well, the originals. By the time it got to like... Oh, the all grown uh, up? Yeah, all grown up. Or the, uh, like when they started introducing like Tommy's, uh, like cousin or the cousin from Chucky's, Chucky's like adopted sister <clears throat> and like cousins from, uh, it just became a little more... Mm -hmm. I also was growing up. It could be that as well. Because <laughs> I remember, like, the hand-drawn versions, and then they started going a lot more, like, traditional, like, a digital animation, digital hand-drawn animation look. So, yeah. uh, which was fine, but, uh, yeah, all growing up, I did, I think I was too old to appreciate, or, or, or it lost something. I'm not sure. It's, it's because you, you were all grown up. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> as a, a filmmaker and, and someone with a lot of, uh, you know, imagination and creativity, you know, like you were talking about the Rugrats, you know, the Rugrats did a lot of adventuring and stuff like that. So, when you were a kid and you would run around and you'd be playing outside, uh, did you have a specific, like, imaginary scenario or, or you know, uh, recurring uh, childhood fantasy that you would uh, enact when you were running around outside like you know I was a big Calvin and Hobbes fan so I'd run around and like imagine myself in space and stuff like that you know running through the woods was there anything like that for you I'm a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan too but uh let me think um for me it was um this sounds really bizarre but like it always was things involving like ridiculous conspiracy theory type things involving like uh, my cousins and I would like this one game we would play like um, while running around and stuff with my sister with my sister like two of the cousins and I like um, our parents were in like the basement talking about something I really don't remember the details but it was like sort of like sneaking around and like trying to figure out like how to get like getting out of the house and all this stuff like obviously our parents were never sneaking around doing anything nonsensical but like it was just this game we would play of like I don't know like it was a weird horror kind of thriller game and I even then appreciated the like the zeal for uh, like the, the rush I would get playing this ridiculous game about like our parents were trying to sell us on the black market all that kind of <laughs> ridiculous nonsense that I don't know how, as a child, we came up with it, but we did. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, I think that, that probably speaks to, you know, like, like what are the adults doing when we're not around? Like, what are they talking exactly. about? Like, that's where that's... And, 
you know, that's no, awesome. Enough, yeah, strangely enough, I, I, I've, good and bad, my parents don't tell me about how many times I would ruin family trips by guessing them. <laughs> I would always have, like, this inaction, be like, you know what, I feel like we should go to, I, feel, I really want to go to the movies today. And my parents would like, come on. Every, it would happen, they said every time, they were like, well, maybe we should go down to, like, Disney World. I'd be like, we haven't been to Disney World in a while, we should go soon. It's like, they're, like, trying to plan a trip, so they're like, we're not sure if you heard us, even in the back of your mind, or you just always had this, like, weird thought, like, huh, at the same time that we were about to <laughs> surprise you, but, yeah. But, yeah, I agree with you, it's probably... Was that like that childhood, like wonder what the parents do? Why aren't we there with them? Kind of a thing. Right, and now as an adult, you you get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're probably just working or enjoying like twenty seconds away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, if you could be any animal for one day, what would you be? One day. I'm trying to think. That's a great question. Elephants are my favorite animal, but I think I'd be a little afraid to be one, at least in the wild. Like, it sounds great. It sounds like a lot of fun, but at the same point, like, what if that's the one unfortunate day that, like, a poacher came in the habitat? Right. <laughs> um, so, maybe a beluga whale? I, I've recently become, I've recently started loving beluga whales. Um, I just think they're ridiculously cool and, I don't know, probably something like that, Some where I could just swim and, and kind of enjoy life uh, mostly worry-free. And and you or would have a Rafi song named after you. Exactly. Either that or a great white, so I could mm. just start ter- trying to terrorize the ocean. I would go right to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am a, a huge shark guy. Like, I love sharks, so, like, that would have been my answer. You know. Yeah, sharks are, sharks are amazing. I just... Like Jaws still has made like has, makes me afraid of uh, to a slight degree. Like I still want to jump in a cage with them when I when I do mm-hmm. get the chance to go to Australia. Like I would get in a cage with great whites. Like I because I know it's safe. Like it's not the shallows. It's not forty seven meters. Right. Uh, you know, down was it forty seven meters down? I think so. Yeah, forty seven um, meters down. Now there's then there was a sequel, and now there's another one coming out. There was a sequel already? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I think it was like 48 meters down or something. It was something along those lines. I missed that one completely. It was straight to to video. Okay. I like the new one, the idea of the new one that's coming out, because that one's coming to theaters again, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, 47 meters down, uncaged is the, the, the new one. Cool. I'm glad I liked 47 Meters Down, and The Shallows was one of my favorite shark movies lately. Um, for a long time, Jaws kind of held this status, and nobody could make a good shark movie. I mean, we had Deep Blue Sea, which was a lot of fun, but like it wasn't the greatest movie ever made. Right. So I like the idea that now they're at least trying a little more to make a high quality shark movie again. I think digital technology has helped. Um, I'm not sure people wanted to go through the 
uh, hell of making a <laughs> shark movie with animatronics again after uh, Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3, Jaws the Revenge all had issues with their animatronics. Right, but it made it, it the film was so cool though, you know, like we're, we're huge fans of practical effects. Like, it's a, it's a dying art, um, and, you know, the fact that... Oh, did you hear that they just restored? I think it was Greg Nicotero's group just yep. restored the original Bruce animatronic shark yeah. from Jaws. Uh, yeah, they're still working, and they're going to have it in the Academy Museum. That's yes. one of my... That's the thing I'm most looking forward to about... Because I'm here in L.A., and I've been getting excited for that, but I'm very happy that they're doing um, animatronic... Like having that original, one of the three original sharks up in uh, up in LA. That will be awesome to see all restored. And Nicotero obviously is a huge fan of Jaws and took it on as like a passion project. So I'm excited to see with the love and care that he's going to give it. Some but of the no, practical effects are definitely a dying industry. I got to work <laughs> with a great effects team on the film I produced, and I'll talk about it a little later. But it uh, it was yeah. It's incredible to like watch them sculpt things, to watch them load up the blood tubes and all that kind of. I love practical effects. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. <clears throat> so, final question: Is there a television character to whom you most relate? Like, what would be your most relatable character on a on a show that you watch? Let me think. Yeah, this isn't an easy one because it's like, oh, who did I? Who would I relate to? Yeah, and like, I watch a, I watch some television, but like, I'm trying to think, like, who? It's different, like, relating to elements of it, like. I think it might be. I'm trying to think. In some ways, it might be. Michael Bluth on Arrested Development a little bit. Okay. Not that my family's that crazy, <laughs> but uh, I feel like for that I'm that like. Well, like I feel like I'm I'm pretty. Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty. I'm helpful get, keeping the family together and making sure that we're all kind of on the same page. We've been trying to plan this family trip for a while, and I've kind of been the person who's been like the cheerleader behind it. That's my family and I see each other typically. All four of us get together once a year now because my sister lives in Portland. I live here in Los Angeles. My parents are in New York. So we all we come together for a couple of days around the holidays, and then we all go back and do our own thing. So I think the idea of taking like a week vacation together for the first time since, I think, 2008, it will be nice to you know get to spend a little more time with them all. Yeah, it is nice. Now, when, yeah. you, when you say Portland, did you mean Maine or Oregon? Oregon. Okay. See, I wasn't sure. It's, it's, one, it's one coast or the other, you yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, those of you are getting into character questions, uh, I think you performed quite admirably. Because um, that, that's one of those things, like, people think sometimes that we rehearse these off-air. Off because we had a guest a few weeks ago that, like, we were asking him the most ridiculous questions, and he's like, I have an answer for that. And... You know, it's not like no one knows what the questions are until they come out of our mouth. Sometimes we don't even know what the questions are going to be because we're like, man, what have we not asked? So, 
we uh, we appreciate your, yeah, your so thank candor. you for indulging us. <laughs> of course. So uh, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, Get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Hey, comic book fans, are you looking for a comic con that has nothing but comic books? Well, there's only one place for you to go, and that'll be Terrific Con, Connecticut's Terrific Comic Con, happening at the Mohegan Sun Expo Center this August 9th through the 11th. Join us at Terrific Con, where you'll see nothing but comic book artists and writers, plus stars from your favorite comic book movies and TV shows. That's Terrific Con. Connecticut's terrific Comic-Con. Nothing but comic books everywhere you look. For more information, go to TerrificCon.com. This is Emma. You're listening to Showdown Sunday. We are back. So, uh, Derek, you uh, you recently um, I want I want to talk before we get into your latest film, uh, which you produced. I want to talk a little bit about um, the Kane Hodder documentary to Helen back because yeah, let's go ahead. We've had uh, a couple of interactions with Kane Hodder at conventions, um, and. <laughs> One of the things people really don't realize about him is, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's Kane Hodder. He played Jason. You know, he's just this big, hulking brute and everything. And there's so much more to him than that, and people uh, really don't get to see that unless they interact with him at a convention or watch this documentary. Um, And I want to say this was so well done. I... You know, I had had a, a, a very high level of respect for him because of the way we've interacted, but this just like skyrocketed the the respect and, ad, and admiration I have for this man. Um, what was it like, you know, delving into some of the more sensitive subjects that um, that you guys covered, like you know the the burning incident? That's a great question, uh, Kane was always uh, open with us about the stuff like I believe he had written a book with Mike Aloisi called Unmasked mm-hmm. uh, fairly recently before we started we approached him to do the film and he you know it was starting to get I think by doing the book he, he had opened up to people especially to his, the author Mike and they so I think it was a little less 
raw for him to delve into. It was still more raw than I think he expected at times. Yeah. Uh, however, like, it's still like, it was a nice, it was nice for us to be able to see him being willing to go to these places with us. Because prior to this film, like, I didn't have very many credits at all to my name. I'd worked on some films, and uh, my co-producer, Andrew Marcello, he didn't have many credits to his name. So it was really Kane trusting us the way he trusted Mike Aloisi, who hadn't had very many, you know, he was starting his own label uh, to publish. It was sort of like, I'm going to give you my trust, and we kind of on the flip side said, but you have final cut approval. So our answer, if every time he got uh, questionable about answering something was, listen, if you don't like the way it comes out, we don't have to include it in the film. Remember, you have final cut approval. So we were able to get a lot of these interviews and on difficult subject matter, and uh, he knew that at the end of the day, if he didn't like the way it came out, if he didn't want to be portrayed a certain way, we could always cut it out. And the funny thing is he never utilized that final cut approval power. Like, he watched the movie, he had a couple notes here and there, but, like, he didn't remove anything. It was all, like, just, like, oh, what if the montage at the end includes more with my family? And it was like, that's a great idea. Let's get some more pictures and make that happen. Like, it was all things like that. It was never... Uh, I was so happy when he saw it, and he appreciated what we were doing and, and thought that it, it really captured his story, because it's not a small story to capture. There's a lot that happened in his life, as, as you guys know, between bullying as a child, the third-degree burns over 80% of his body, and the horrible malpractice aftercare, losing the role of Jason in Freddy vs. Jason. Like His life has had some big up and downs, but uh, I think there's so many ups for the downs, and that's kind of what keeps this movie, uh, I think, enjoyable, is that for every down, there's a big upswing as well. Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, <clears throat> you know, normally with a documentary, like, you don't get as much, like, it, I mean, depending on the subject matter, you don't get so much, like, visceral emotion, but this, I mean, when she was re-watching it, I was uh, in, in the other room, and I heard the part where he started talking about, you know, how he did the the burn for the reporter, and I stopped what I was doing and went back out to watch it again because it was so powerful. I've been suggesting this to a ton of people, like anybody who's a horror fan who will listen. I've been like, mm-hmm. watch this documentary. Well, thank you. I very I appreciate it. It's it's definitely you know I I've loved every minute of the process of making this movie, and I I'm so happy that it's been getting. Uh, a positive reaction from people because I just set out to make uh, a good movie and, and do Kane's story justice and the fact that it seems like I accomplished that because Kane loves it and the general consensus is is that it's an enjoyable film. I'm, I'm so happy. So I'm curious because you mentioned that Kane Hodder had you know final say on the final cut. Were there yeah. any other differences um, directing a documentary than directing scripted film? The only main difference is there's no script per se. Like uh, the the script I had was like was questions that I, I developed and came up with, and then it was a lot of the 
editing uh, of the film was sort of the writing as well, because the editor and I sat down and we came up with the basic story, and then kind of I sat down, we would watch cuts of it, and I would kind of trim and move things around, be like, we have a version where he says it like this, do we, and we move it, so a lot of the writing was in post, whereas in a scripted film, the script is written ahead of time. So it's reactionary um, instead of proactive. Yeah, at least on this film, because of, there was so much, I really wanted Kane's interviews to tell the story. And when they started going a certain direction about a subject matter, like we would really push them and kind of keep it going in that direction. Because I, cut, I wanted to have the most amount of stuff that we could, because mm -hmm. then in post we could make the d decisions. And there's a lot of stuff we had to cut. Um, if we're lucky enough to get like a... 10th anniversary Blu-ray version of the film or or digital release, there'll probably be a a lot more bonus footage than is even on the uh, Blu-ray. We have, I think, 90 minutes of bonus footage on the Blu-ray uh, because there's so much. We had six hours of just came. Wow. Uh, in interviews, yeah. That's impressive. Um, and he went for a long time. He would go for hours and hours and hours at a time uh, with very short breaks. So there are some great interviews in this documentary. Was there anyone in particular you were excited to have the opportunity to speak with? I think, I mean, there were a lot of these horror icons that I had had not had the chance to meet before. So to get to meet them in this environment was really cool. Uh, I met Cassandra Peterson twice before, uh, once in character as Elvira and once out. But that was just, you know, as a fan, I, I saw her at convention or at Not Scary Farm after a show, that kind of a thing. But to be able to, like, sit down and interview her, she's, like, the sweetest person, and she really, she drove through L.A. traffic before she drove to the airport to visit her mother. So she literally, like, redirected her whole travel plan around driving to where we had the interview set up for her. So she literally, I think, flew into Los Angeles, did a panel at uh, Monster Palooza, I believe, or one of those events about Not Scary Farm, and announcing her her show that year. And then she drove across LA traffic to us, did the interview, and then drove to the airport and was out of town again for like a week before she came back and started uh, going into daily rehearsals for her Not Show. So it was a lot of uh, like careful planning uh, but everyone was willing to do it for Kane like Robert England was amazing to get to talk to that man is a film uh, like connoisseur he loves cinema and it, you can tell like with the way he talks in the movie but even the conversations we had outside of it like he is a a lover of like classic horror cinema like he just adores film. That's and awesome. So were, sorry, you can go ahead. I was going to say, that's awesome to hear that, you know, when people are part of, you know, a culture, that they're also a connoisseur, and, like, they they sample all the meats of the cultural stew. Exactly, yeah. and But I think the biggest people, like, Kane's family had never done interviews ever before, and so to be able to get that trust from him, to be like, yeah, my family's on, on board, his childhood friend, Steve Nappy, like, the author of the book, like, there were so many people that, like, weren't necessarily huge film people. Obviously, I'm very grateful for all of the 
horror celebrities and, and general celebrities that were wanting and were a part of the film. But like something about interviewing his wife and kids, it was like, wow, we must have enough respect uh, of his that he is allowing us into his home and to you know do interviews with his wife and kids. Yeah, like that's that's uh, I think one of the highest levels of trust you can uh, achieve from someone. So agreed. And Adam Green, I think, was the one I've been wanting to meet the longest, uh, and I'm so happy that we met under the circumstances we did of being, uh, you know, me working on a film that he was being interviewed for because, uh, you know, I have such respect for him and his contributions to independent horror and that he's done and that he's going to continue to do because I just, the Hatchet series is one of my favorite uh, franchises out right now. Oh, yeah. same. Yeah, he's same. he's a, a, a delightful uh, a delightful man. Like, we've met him, there's a because um, we're in Massachusetts so, you know, we've met him at Rock and Shock a couple of times in Worcester. Nice. And he's, I, I was at Rock and Shock a few years ago. We, uh, that's where we got the interviews for Twisted. It was up at the Palladium there. Yep. Behind, they were doing a show for Rock and Shock, and so we like went. It was like up backstage in like the green room. We did a you know running gun interview right after their set. It was crazy, but uh, and those guys are are great too. Like I never in a million years thought I would be interviewing Twisted and that they would record an original song for the movie and that they would be such legitimately nice people, but they are. And they're people that I would love to work with again in the future, for sure. That was definitely um, an interview that I was surprised to see, but I think it added a lot to the documentary and it added a lot to, you know, just who Kane Hodder is in general, the fact that he's had such an impact on pretty much everyone. Agreed, and, and Twisted's his favorite band, um, so it's it's interesting because like you wouldn't think that they would be, but like especially lately, like I've I don't know what it is, but I love the fact that they're going more uh, rock with their music. I think it's a great decision, and it's one like that I love more than a monster. Like I have when I first heard it, I was blown away by that song and and what they were able to do. It's it's to me a lot of I'm a big Alice Cooper fan and it's a lot yes. like uh, Men Behind the Mask oh really of, okay it's, uh, it's in the out. end credits of the, the documentary and it's it's a it's a really cool the fact that they're talking about that there's more to Kane than just being a monster is kind of I always I like the fact that that's the direction they went because we gave them a lot of material they could have gone with Right. Uh, if they wanted to, like a lot of burn stuff, a lot of bullying stuff, we kind of said, "You, we know how much you love Kane and respect him. Here's a lot of lines from the documentary. Go do with it what you want. Like we trust that you'll do something Kane will be happy with." And the first time he heard it, he was blown away by. It. He loved it. That's awesome. Um. So, is there anybody? You know, we'll wrap up the documentary discussion. Because you know we have there inside to talk about, but uh, was there anybody that you hoped that you could have gotten that you know maybe you you didn't get for the documentary? 
there were definitely a bunch of people uh, later on in the process that ended up wanting to be a part of it. That unfortunately, due to timing and the fact that we already had so much footage and the film was pretty much done, we couldn't get it. Uh, a couple of names come to mind is Kane's co-host and uh, his new podcast, Casual Fridays, mm-hmm. uh, Tiffany Shepas. Yep. Her and I were in communications. We were supposed to have the interview once, and then unfortunately uh, it fell through, so we uh, were trying to reschedule, and then it never worked out. Tony Todd uh, was another one that really wanted to be part of it, but he kept getting booked on work, so like neither one of us were upset by it. Um, right. It just timing-wise didn't work out. But literally everyone we approached wanted to be a part of it, and then other people started approaching us. You know what? Kane is amazing. We have so many stories to tell. And that's why I hope to be able to do, at the end of the doc, we kind of say, um, you know, in five years or ten years, you do another documentary. I hope to be able to do at least a short, like, Blu-ray exclusive or, you know, film festival, uh, like, release film that's just like, a 30, 40-minute update on Kane's career since the end of Talent Back, because we already have, like, Victor Crowley and uh, a lot of the other films he's done since that are kind of more and more showcasing Kane's ability to act outside of prosthetics or to continue to revolutionize acting within practical makeup. And I could bring a lot of those newer people into those interviews as well as... um, some of the people that were there from the beginning. Right, and I really appreciated how at the end you tacked on interviews with the fans uh, because some of their stories are the same stories that we have, you know, and other Kane Hodder fans that we know have from conventions. And Patsy's been choked out by Kane Hodder, so, you know, <laughs> listening to people be like, wow, he really choked me. Patrick's like, yeah, I was really choked by him. I was like, he just gave me a hug, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, well, <laughs> funny story about that. Like, he's sitting there, and he's got you strangling me, and she's like, oh, let me try to take a picture. Oh, fiddle dee dee, the lens cap is on. Let me mess around with this. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> this is not an act. No, you, you can't, you can't breathe when he does it. He, it's really choking, but it isn't like, obviously, if in a second you, he heard you gasping for air, he, he would stuck, release yeah. it and you'd be fine. But like, the sensation is, is crazy. I've been, it's happened to me. Unfortunately, he doesn't do it anymore. Um, somebody out here did not uh, react very well to it. And so now, he, for the time being at least, he does not do choking pictures. He'll do, he'll let, sometimes he'll let you choke him, like you like do the motion to him, or, but he just, he decided it's safer uh, for himself to not choking for a little while. Yeah, probably a good idea. I get it. I think so. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but at the same point, I think it's... I'm glad we captured it in the documentary then, because it was such a big part of so many fans' lives for so long. Well, it, it almost feels like a rite of passage. You know, like, I was choked out by Kane Hodder. Jason Voorhees choked me, you know? <laughs> yeah, and Danielle Harris does not get it. It's in the film, but she really... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> with him than a lot of fans. They, they just see him as the the killer they grew up with that, that was brought these characters to life, whereas 
she knows him like I know him, like his the the guy he is, not necessarily the characters he played. Right. It's more like that's my coworker, you know, like exactly. <laughs> well, more probably more so like that's my family at yeah. this point, you know, no, like this point, yeah, the two the two of them are so close. Uh, yeah, that's it's like that's my family. Why would I want my family to choke me? And that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, to be fair, who do you want to strangle more than your family sometimes? <laughs> true, true, very true. So, let's talk about their inside. So, I watched this the other day, because uh, uh, Michelle was kind enough to send us a screener, and, um, you know, it's kind of been making the round with uh, the, the rest of the folks on the network. So, first thing I need to ask is what to you, when you were deciding to, to be a part of this, was there a specific moment or scene or person involved that you were like, you know what? I want to give my dollars to this film. Yeah, for me it was uh, the I just I loved the fact that uh, I'm, I'm a fan of found footage done right, however so much of it is not done right. Now, when I read this script and I was like, okay, we're answering questions. We're finally answering who's filming. Uh, why are they, why is it still sort of being recorded after, you know, someone would clearly put down a camera? And, uh, you know, also the, the, the fact that, like, who edited this film all get answered within the, the film. I was like, okay, I really appreciate what they're going for. They're just meeting with the, writer and the director who at the time were roommates of mine I had moved into a new place um, Andrew and I the producer of Talon back and another producer on there inside he him and I were roommates and he got married and I moved out uh, before that and into a new place and Talon back was about to enter post production like hardcore post and we were here uh, with that and they were talking about this movie and I said well Andrew and I are producers, send us the script. And I read it, and it was like, okay. I want. I told Andrew, I'm like, I think this should be the the film we bring on to the, our Master Lacob family next. Like, we should get on board with this now. And, you know, we got involved really early. Helped with fundraising, helped with um, getting the film. Like, I was the first assistant director as well as a producer, so we planned like every day of shooting. We we're very hands-on with it because we want it to be a success, especially for the, you know, very low-budget film it is. We need to be involved early and stay involved all the way through the end in order to make it happen. So as the producer, what type of creative input did you have? I, I, I was involved with a lot of the sort of high-level decisions as far as uh, creativity. I, I really let the director, John Paul Pinelli, go a little, go on his end, and the writer, Skylar Brumley. Uh, John Paul also co-wrote the film, and so I let them kind of handle a lot of the creative aspects, but whenever there was a decision to be made or um, it involved like a substantial cost, I would always kind of get involved, especially as a director what I like is that you get to make the decision and you can make the like in a lot of ways you can make the most ridiculous decision if it was just you 
as long as it creatively fits the movie. But as a producer, you're worried about the the budget. You're worried about the um, the way the film's going to be seen by audiences. And that was a huge learning curve on this one. Was like, okay, I'm not looking at this as a director. I can't. So as a as a also a director, I can sympathize with the need to get 15 shots of this one action for because you want coverage but at the other point it's like we need to move on we don't have the budget to be sitting around here getting 15 shots of the same tape if we have it let's get one for safety and move on like we're, we're good we don't need to do so many of them so a lot of it stems from the like the producer's job is to get the film finished on or below budget and um, with the most chance of success so a lot of the decisions I made creatively were like let's show this film to people and see if they're getting what we're doing if not we gotta fix it like I know you're in love with the way this film's going right now but if none of the audience is getting it it will never make any money and we won't be able to make another one so we need to at least appeal to uh, some of the audience we don't need to go with like the lowest common denominator audiences. But let's aim in the middle. Let's not just make a film for film people because those tend not to make a whole lot of money. Let's make something that's a little more digestible. We don't need to spoon feed, but let's give them some answers to help uh, alleviate some of the tension and questions people have with the film. And the director was always on board, did not really fight back because he understood like if I was saying that as a uh, as also a director, like there must be a, a reason for it. It was a great relationship with filmmakers, and one I hope to be able to do again as a producer. So during the getting into character portion of, of this show, you mentioned yeah. the use of practical effects. Can you elaborate on any of the effects used in this film? Because there were some really great gory scenes. Yeah, yeah so I, we, we, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, uh, to add on to her question, without spoiling anything, that uh, camera shot from under the bed of that one particular yes. death, that's probably my favorite shot of the film. I love that shot, and it was not fun to get necessarily, but I'm so happy we focused on... The, the idea was always that we needed to... If we were going to do the like hidden camera aspect, that these cameras were hidden in the house, they had to be places that made sense. So if a scuffle happened and a camera got knocked off of a certain place and fell on the ground, it could get this shot. So we always had to think about that. Like we weren't necessarily framing like the perfect shot all the time. We were concerned about is this a realistic place that a camera would be? Or how can we best describe how this camera would be hidden uh, for some of the shots that involve the hidden cameras? But, yeah, I love that shot as well. But, we, yeah, we utilize Soda Effects. They're the company behind uh, Children of the Corn, Death House with Kane, and, and so many other films, including a bunch of new Blumhouse films that are coming out. They've been really heavily involved with creating... They did the makeup for Sinister 2, for the big the villain, like they've been getting some very high profile jobs lately, and I can only um, believe why they were wonderful to work with. 
they worked with in budget. They like were very amenable to changes. Told us like, okay, for that, you know, the amount of money that you're able to, uh, you know, spend on effects for this movie, these are this is like the kind of stuff we can do. So maybe let's shoot it a little further away, or let's do this or that. Like we always came up with ideas on how to best utilize the practical effects so that when we had to digitally do anything, it was 99% of the time all of our digital effects were clean up. We added like little things here and there, tiny bit of extra blood splatter or but the, or like compositing of somebody's real face onto the fake head or that kind of a thing, but it was never uh, our intention to utilize computer-generated effects to replace uh, or to cover up the incredible work that was done because I love practical effects. I am working on a, a short film that I hope to turn into a feature. Once that's done, that'll utilize a lot of practical effects because I want to keep that industry going because that's one of the things I love most about even the new Child's Play, which a lot of people didn't love. I quite enjoyed it. I love the original franchise. I, I'm hoping it's going to keep going as well, but I don't see a reason we can't have both. Like, the new one, I like that they utilized animatronics. I like that they utilized uh, practical blood and, and gore effects. So I think that anytime we can have that kind of thing continue, that's what I love about the Hatchet movies. Adam Green in general, he's also a fan of practical effects. And don't get me wrong, digital has its place, and there's plenty of use that can be had for digital effects. But when you can get something with a practical effect, there's just something about it. The fact that it's on set with you, that you can interact with it. It has its limitations sometimes with the amount of time and people that's involved in getting one shot of usable um, film, whereas with uh, digital in theory, we could have done these kills like 500 times because what difference in takes? Because what difference would it have mattered? We still have the uh, effect. Yeah, see that and that this one specific kill that I, I alluded to earlier. Because again, I don't want to spoil anything because we want no, people no, to see the film. <clears throat> I watched it like a couple of times because I was like. How did they, like, because I understand, you know, we interview a lot of indie filmmakers and actors and, and directors and, and whatnot, and it's like, man, like, how did, because you look at this shot, and like, you know, I, maybe I'm not looking at it from the same lens as everyone else, or maybe I, you know, I, I don't know the technical stuff, but to me, it looked flawless. Like, the way that kill was done, like, it looks like somebody actually died. Like, it looked yeah. amazing. And, and to allude to it, there was a... Um, it's because we utilized the real actress um, with a fake weapon and then switched them uh, while compositing the real actress's face onto the prosthetic. Yeah. If that helps describe it a little better. So we yeah. shot like the first chunk of it with the real actress and a fake weapon, and then we would sort of reversed it with the real weapon and a fake actress. Yeah. And I think that's why it, it looks so well, because for the big 
first chunk of it, it's really the actress getting pummeled, and then we switch, composited her face onto that dummy head, and then had that kill that you're alluding to here. Yeah, because I was I was looking as like because a lot of times you can kind of see there's almost like a because you can never get the shot to exactly line up, so it's like okay, you know they they got this up to a certain point, then they cut. Then they put the dummy down, and then they finish the seat. But like, you can't see that. It's just no. It was fluid. a lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot of work to do it this to do it the way we did it. But um, and you know, in post, there were definitely some finesses and uh, digital companies that had to get involved in assisting with making sure that everything looked the same. That was our always our like you said, our intention was to do a seamless transition between her and the dummy between the ending actor and the dummy like everything was always uh, regarding keeping I, we didn't want you to leave the movie with the effect we wanted to keep you in there sometimes you know an effect happens and the way it's done you kind of leave them oh oh yeah this is a movie we wanted you to be like oh crap <laughs> yeah this, you know and keep it going not question like although that effect was cool but more be like well, oh, I don't know how they did that, or, you know, that because kind of in the back of your mind because it appears realistic. Yeah, and it, it really speaks to your dedication, like not just you, I mean you as in like the entire team. Agreed. Uh, it speaks to the dedication because so many low-budget films, you know, like you're, like you're saying, it's like, well, they'll understand it's low-budget, so if it looks a little off, like they'll get it, it's not a big deal. But, like... Because of this, it just kept flowing. Our intention was always to make this movie because we knew we could do it on a lower budget, but not have it look like a lower budget. That was always our intention was, even if we had had a million dollars to make this movie, we still would have done, or more, we still would have kept 99% of what we did the same. Difference would have probably been, I don't even know what the difference would be. Maybe a couple of named actors in there. Uh, longer shooting schedule, that's for sure. I would have liked to have... I would have probably doubled or, or tripled the shooting schedule. Uh, we did this in 11 days. I would have liked to, you know... I would probably have, like, 20... 20 minimum of 20 days if we were to have shot it for more money because it would have been nice just because even though we were able to get it, we got all the coverage we needed. I feel like... There's always things you would do if you had more money, and and this is and that's one of them. It's just give yourself more time to breathe with certain shots or takes or elements or locations, so that it wouldn't be nothing would feel rushed, even in production side of things. In your opinion, what sets this movie apart from other home invasion horror films? Well, I think the ending is certainly what sets it apart. Agree. Yeah, um, that's... Without giving it away, like, I feel like the fact that we reveal who these people are, why all this stuff was done, and then, you know, who edited the film, like, all of that stuff being revealed in there, that's something I don't see every day in these kind of movies. And while I believe the whole film is original, I mean, 
they're marketing it as it's funny games meets the strangers which I think is a brilliant comparison mm-hmm. however I still honestly believe that what drew me to this film was the fact that I had never seen read or uh, been a part of anything like it and I was just telling somebody this before like I think a lot of that is you know Skyler and JP's words but like the director John Paul Pinelli he is a friend of mine but he put his this is his baby like while Talon back is my baby this is his and he without him he was one of the writers he co-edited the film he directed it produced it funded a big chunk of it himself like he without him we couldn't have this movie I know I couldn't direct this movie the way he did and I you know I believe that I could have directed the script but it would not have been this movie and I think that's kind of telling as well as like we were all very happy with the direction he was going and we wanted him to be able to make the movie he wanted to make like it's different than something I would direct but I think that's good as a producer I don't have to just make carbon copy films of what I would make as a director I want to be able to help other people tell the stories that they want to tell how they want to tell them right because you know they have their own voice like you know if exactly and that's my job as a producer is to let them be able to show it and get the film out there now I did have another question about uh, practical effects yeah um, there was um so we, we watched, like uh, we had mentioned, uh, we had gotten to see last night uh, Return of the Living Dead with uh, nice. with uh, Linnea Quigley in in, uh, in attendance. And there's a specific prosthetic that she has had to wear uh, due to censorship. I don't know if you're aware of that story. I am not. So what she had to wear a because uh, prosthetic on her... Uh, lower region, I assume? Yes, uh, okay. because she was, you know, she's naked for pretty much all of her screen time. Agreed, yeah. And they were like, <laughs> well, we can't show pubic hair. And so she shaved it off, and they're like, alright, that looks even worse. So they had to, they made her wear a prosthetic. So I'm wondering if there were any prosthetics used uh, in this film, or if it was all natural. Uh, you know what I'm all talking natural. about. Okay. <laughs> No, the actor was, it was, it was, I was very happy that he agreed, but this isn't a typical, uh, without giving it away, it isn't a typical nude shot. No, it is not at all. It isn't a gratuitous (laughs) thing, it isn't a sex scene, it isn't anything like that, like, it is very integral to the, where the character is right there. Yep. And I think when he, when he read it and we pitched it to him, uh, a director had the conversation with him, he was like, I think it, like, this is what the character would do. Um, we did prep it, and I think there's still a take somewhere out there, uh, like a, a version of the film without it, um, for like potentially some kind of a distribution channel. I'm not sure which one, I, or or it's just censored, but like we have it available for the distributor, assuming that like I don't know a country doesn't want it or whatever. Uh, you know, it's available, but. I think it means, it, as you know, a lot of people ask, just that shot. It's like, no, for a while I thought that. But when you see the movie, especially in theaters or, you know, on your screen, watching it with people, there's such, like, a raw part of 
the fact that, like, you know, he's yeah. not allowed to wear clothing. So it's sort of, you know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, oh, crap, this is what's going on here. Right. That I feel like is made less impactful when it's blurred or censored. Now, we could do that because, obviously, we answer who's editing the film, so if somebody's editing it, they can always add that for their own reasons. But, and it would make sense, but I, I, I think it works much better without it. No, I think it, it definitely was... <clears throat> See, there's a lot of stuff in this film that you're like, what the hell? Like, why is it, like, why is there a cheetah? What is the... <laughs> what? Like, what? I don't understand, but like you said, you you figure it out at the end. It all is revealed for those with patience. Because this film is definitely a, a slow burn, uh, but when it kicks in, it really kicks in. Mm-hmm. Agreed, and I think that's why, like, for a while, like, the slow burn aspect, like, a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't like that. It, a lot of people don't like slow burn movies, but I always point to The Thing, the John Carpenter yep. version. Yep. Very slow burn. Very slow burn. But it's the story, and this film as well has a slow burn because of the story that it's telling. It, it lends itself to a slow burn because it's a very impactful story and one that requires time because you know the characters in order to appreciate it. Exactly. It's not, you know, dragging things out, you know, because I've seen films where it's like they're dragging things out. It's like, oh, we had a low budget, so, you know, and we had to reach feature length, so we put, like, all this, you know, ridiculous exposition and backstory in there, and then we saved all the action for the last 15 minutes. And it's like, yeah, I guess, but I still no, didn't agree. connect with any of these characters. I didn't care about who they were. That's the difference between, like, those types of films and yours. Like, you get a sense that, like, there's something seriously wrong and that uh, Amanda Ward's character, Cody, like, you sort of, like, watch her... I don't want to say break, but you watch as she, you know, you can almost see her sanity bending till oh, no, it snaps. Yeah, she she goes through a certain uh, process in this movie of, of mental breakdown, and she uh, did so flawed. Like, she talks about it at, like, Q&As and stuff, how, like, those were very difficult days in filming. And they really were for her. She pushed herself to the limit on them. Yeah, but it it paid off. Uh-huh. Agreed. She did an incredible job. The whole cast and, and crew, everyone on this movie did such a great job. They had the same vision in mind. And I think that's what said, like, we became like a family. We still love... I just did a Q&A over at a theater out here with the uh, Alex, who played... Uh, Reinhardt, who played the woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda Award, who played uh, uh, Cody. And uh, Chelsea Miller, who played uh, Joanna. All of them came from L.A., drove down to Orange County, did this screening at the Frida Theater, had a Q&A with me, and it was like seeing old friends. Like, we all want to work together again soon. And uh, Alex and us were trying to get to go to conventions and stuff as well with her as the woman. I think it's a great idea to be able to bring her out because, like, we one thing people don't know is we these the masks are 100% a proprietary material for us. Like, we own those masks. Like, they 
the same company, Soda Effects, made custom masks for us. Like, those are original masks that, you know, we can, so we can utilize them in all publicity. We can bring the woman out. In theory, we could eventually sell the masks because we own them. So, well, I mean, do so. you know, like what you're saying, you know, like, um, the, uh, having, you know, um, Alex come out and, like, you know, be her character, uh, we were just at a convention, uh, in Framingham, uh, Scaricon. They also do one in upstate New York in October. And they had David Howard Thornton from Terrifier, and he, you know, he was at his booth and, you know, talking to fans and such. And then, for his photo op, he was in full Art the Clown regalia, and, like, just hamming it up. It, and I love the fact that they've been doing more and more photo ops lately in character. I mean, and this was this was phenomenal. Like, he's uh, a friend of ours described him as a spitfire, and he really is. Like, he was hamming it up. Like, he was doing all oh, these yeah. different poses. That's awesome. And that's like when I saw Elvira in uh, full costume for uh, a signing and photo op. She did it at the Not Scary Farm where she did her a live show for many years. She did. Uh, she had Elvira's boutique, and in it after. The show certain times during like thirty or twenty minutes after every one of her shows, she did like a thirty minute signing. Like you, if you bought a certain amount of merchandise, you were the first hundred customers or whatever, or fifty or something, you would get like a card getting you admission to a certain signing. So I went in, you know, I have the items I paid for signed, and she was full Elvira, one hundred percent quipping with the audience, making jokes. I'm mean, I wanted to ride fans later. You know, or, or have them ride her, you know, things like that. Like, she was, whatever, she had, they're so good at improvising. And even like Kane, when he's doing a photo op, it's Jason. The fact that he'll just stand there doing his breathing thing and, like, at attack the people with machetes in yeah. the photo op. Like, the pictures are legit. Or the pinhead experience that Doug, Doug Bradley did a few years ago in a full, like, recreated, like, uh, like torture room and stuff. Like, I love the fact that they're, able to do it. I think it would lend itself well for their inside to have the man and the woman at conventions, especially the woman, because her voice and the actress are the same person. Right. So she legitimately talk to people in that creepy voice in the full costume. But it, I think it's cool to have the man there, too, because while he wouldn't necessarily be as talking, he has a lot less lines in the movie than she does, and it'd be kind of cool to have him and his physicality as well. Yes. He's a very good physical actor. And I can see there being a lot of fans of this film once people have the opportunity to see it. And to be able to create that type of experience for fans, you know, photo ops at a convention, uh, it, it's priceless. You know, it really is. Like, having that opportunity to almost, like, become a horror character, you know. Uh, I agree, and I hope we have the opportunity to, to do it. Alex is 100% game, the actress. She is... Uh, she loves this uh, character and the ability to scare people. Like she, she says she scares herself when she does certain. Like when she watched the movie, she was scared of herself. And she's like, "It's so funny because a lot of times you watch a movie and all you're seeing is, oh, I did that like that." She's like, "As a woman, I'm just seeing something I'm scared." Of. <laughs> and she was actually one of my favorite characters in this film. No, I love that character. It's an incredible. Uh, Wanted. It's funny talking about it because, like, I was involved with it 
so heavily, but like she, like in a lot of ways, like I just I love the fact that we were able to create villains that like had characters. A lot of times it's just menacing. We created ones that like you kind of get backstory a little bit from them too, or at least what their intentions are with their actions. Yeah, and I was I was gonna say this is uh, a smarter um, horror film. You know, there's a lot of aspects to it. Like I said, you know, it's a slow burn, and, you know, it takes some time. But, like, as you're progressing through the movie, like, there are certain things that are expanded upon, and there are certain things that, you know, you're... It, it still has the ferocity of, you know, a, sla- you know, a, a mindless slasher, but it also has intelligence, too. Well, thank you. I completely agree with that. And I think a lot of that stems from, uh, you know, the the director, John Paul Panera. Again, like, I feel like I'm talking him up a lot, but, like, he... I, I, there's a reason for that. Like, like I said, like, while well, To Hell Back's my baby, this is his, and while I take ownership of what I've done on this movie, and I do love their inside, I want people to see it, and that's why I'm, like, 100% on board to promote it. Like, he... He made something great, so I'm not going to take credit for the stuff he was able to do as well, other than by understanding, like, I'm so happy that the film that we made is getting, uh, you know, the appreciation that I feel like it deserves. And for a while, I don't think um, a lot of the audiences were getting it, so I'm glad with some of the tweaks we made that while it is a more intellectual movie than some, at least... You're under, people are understanding it and people are really grasping what the intention was and, and are actually scared by it. Yeah, it's it's one of those, like, this could definitely happen. Um, I did really like the reveal behind the uh, the door with the red doorknob uh, after we, we get to <laughs> see the woman uh, for the first time. Uh, not the first time, but the first time with this particular group. No, agree. No, I know what you're talking about. It's definitely uh, the premise, like how things happen, how the victims are chosen. Um, I really liked that. Like that was. It's like, oh, that's a unique way of doing it. You know, it's not like a a jigsaw thing where it's like I'm in a, I'm choosing you because I've been watching you. It's. I don't want to say, but. No, 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 I get what you're saying. It's, it's definitely more of a planned out, methodical approach to choosing your victims. And it, it uh, I think that a lot of that is why I'm very intrigued with, like, I came up with a premise for a potential prequel, and uh, and, and the writer and director, for a se- they came up with one for a sequel. I think they also have an idea for a prequel that if, if we're able to make, I'd love to collaborate with them and kind of get the best of both of our ideas on both, because... I feel like there's so much we can do with, the, especially the villains, but even I'd love to see in a sequel a little more with Robin and Cody. Yeah. Yes, but, yeah, and this, this and, film... And, you know, the, the characters that fortunately are, you know, able to survive and or, you know, other characters in the, in the, in the, in the world or, or different ones with these same interactions. Yeah, this film could easily become a franchise. I don't know, we would love that. We just, truthfully, our biggest thing is we just want to be able to create 
uh, high quality films. I know that's the mission statement of Master Macabre is like hard, hard Jason films of quality. Like we want to make really strong films, and that's why I went with their inside for the first narrative. Is when I read it, I was like, if we mesh well with these guys, like I feel like we can make another film that lives up to the same level of uh, quality as to Hell and Back, and we'll keep moving our company forward. I don't want to move back. I'd like to move forward and keep progressing with what we are able to do. Right. So, I think uh, that's been a really good conversation. I'm Because if we talk about this anymore, we're going to get into spoiler territory, and I don't want to do that. So, uh, where can folks find your films? Where can uh, folks find you on social media? Yeah, so the films themselves, uh, To Hell and Back, is available on Worldwide, VOD, uh, Blu-ray, and DVD combo pack through Epic Pictures and Dread. Dread. Um, it's available for uh, for anyone who has Amazon Prime. It is available streaming on there, uh, free of charge, um, on that platform. It is also available, or, so that is where they can find To Hell and Back. Now, for now... Uh, their inside is available on Blu-ray through Dread. It's available uh, at Epic. It's available on VOD worldwide. Um, it is not on Amazon Prime yet. I believe it, it, it's going to be uh, on there at some point, but at the moment it's a paid VOD. But I feel like it's certainly worth the the investment. I feel like it, it, right now I know it's very reasonable cost, and I feel like it's I think it's nine ninety nine on most platforms. So I feel like it's certainly worth buying it to, in order to really grasp what we were like trying to do. Please don't pirate the movies. There are many ways to get them for uh, low cost, even to rent it, $2.99. You know, there's no need to pirate it. Um, and also, um, to find me uh, and social media, my company is at Masterfully Macabre on Instagram, at Masterfully M on Twitter, Masterfully Macabre Entertainment on Facebook. And me, I'm Derek D. Herbert on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Um, so I want to thank you for, for joining us today. And um, thank you for answering all these questions, you know, taking time out of your day. You know, I know you've got some very important stuff to do uh, later on today. So, um, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your very busy schedule. You got up early after being up uh, late last night. So... You know, it means a lot that you wanted to join us. So. Of course, I'd, I'd love to come back for future uh, projects as well if you'd like to have me. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely keep us in the loop. Let us know what's going on. Um, now, I'm working on some really exciting uh, projects right now. Nothing I can really announce, per se. The big one I was announcing, uh, happy to announce, was there inside, which is now out. But now that that's out, I have a few things that I'm really pushing forward to try to get the next one going because I, with uh, John Paul and Skyler, but also on uh, Master Rakov's side, I really want to keep pushing us forward and, and moving on to the next, hopefully, bigger and better film, or certainly uh, just more films. Well, and, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we are a character-driven podcast, and we have not done an episode on the Rugrats yet, so we'd love to have you back to talk about the Rugrats. <laughs> That's true. Well, I, I would certainly do that, or any <laughs> any character you have in mind if you don't have a guest available and you, you know, wanted to see if it's something I have feelings about. I I usually have strong feelings on things, so I can 
definitely would love to join you guys again. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to have you. Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for your time. You have a promising career ahead of you, and we would love to come along for, for that ride. Thank you so much. Well, hello there, neighborinos. The handle's Mr. Most Days Off, but my friends call me Miles, and I'm the host of the Best Darn Diddly Review Show. Hello, Mr. Most Days Off. <laughs> and that's my best friend, Richie the Whiz Kid, the co-host of Best Darn Diddly. Hi, diddly ho there, podcasterinos. The Best Darn Diddly Review Show is a weekly journey through the entire Simpsons series, hosted by us, two guys who grew up loving the Simpsons. We discuss every diddly, every doodly, and every do. So lace up your assassin sneakers, put on your skin-tight ski suit, and head down the slopes with us at Best Darn Diddly. Stupid, sexy Best Darn Diddly. You can catch us each and every Monday on bestdarndiddly.com. Holy sidetracking, guys! The train just came off the tracks! Derailers! Be sure to follow the derailers on Twitter at the derailers. And make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and also on YouTube, so you can catch the episode next week, folks. Same derailment time, same derailment channel. Hi, this is Samantha Newark, the voice of Jem and Jerrica from the original Jem and the Holograms cartoon series, and you are listening to Throwdown Thursday... And we are back. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that uh, that interview. We had a lot of fun conducting that interview. We did, and uh, I'm so sure... much fun. I lost my voice during the break. Well, as you can tell, there's a difference in sound quality. So this it, the interview we conducted prior to having the studio set up. This was a few weeks ago. So the beginning and the end are actually from the studio. So we hope this sounds a lot better. And uh, this is what you can kind of expect going forward. Although I'm, I'm hoping to improve and get, you know, sort of fiddle with the knobs a little bit and get better. There's some and some stuff. There's some, some do-wackies and some... There's, I don't know what half of these... There's a button that says Phantom, and I've pressed it like six times, and not one ghost has shown up. That's disappointing. Neither has Billy Zane, so uh, I don't know what what that's supposed to do. But uh, I've pressed it, and it's on now, and I don't know what it does, but it's on. So, um, Oh, hold on. We have a, a thing we can do, and I, I know how to do this because I've done it uh, a couple of times. Because we have a battle, but this is going to be the first time I'm going to I'm going to play the battle music uh, in because uh, normally what I've been doing like all this stuff I've been adding everything in afterwards um, because I we just didn't have all the files and everything. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the the battle music because we have a new battle and um, I don't have to record over this because we just are uh we play it yeah we, we just play thing. it we don't have to talk over it or we anything thing. so i'm just waiting for it to open up because i should have had this prepared but i didn't because learning yes but i'm again this is the first time i'm doing this i'm new please we don't judge me too harshly. that's impossible but uh 
Here it comes. Any second now. Almost. And... Awesome. So I didn't have to add that in. I hope it sounds good. I'll listen to it after. All right, uh, Ashes, go ahead. You have our new battle this week. Yeah, so because we were talking about, in our interview, uh, the documentary To Hell and Back, which is about Kane Hodder, and Kane Hodder is most known for playing one of the Jasons in the Friday the 13th franchise, we want to know which Jason is truly king of Camp Crystal Lake. So you can choose from... C.J. Graham, who played Jason in Part 6 from 1986. Kane Hodder, who played Jason in Part 7, Part 8. Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X. Um, Ken Kurzinger, who played Jason in Freddy vs. Jason. Or Derek Mears, who portrayed Jason in the 2009 reboot of the franchise. Yeah, so there's a lot of talented... uh talented folks on that list so you know let us know who you think is number one and uh we will we will uh put i mean that out i there. i know who i'm choosing oh i know who i'm choosing but too it's uh, it's kind of a toss-up between two yeah and, and i know exactly it's, who you're it's talking because about. we've had the opportunity to actually meet a couple of and these interact people, you know at conventions they've both been we've, super awesome right like they they're just there's they're such nice people and know, we're gonna in, get to see person. one of them at Rock and Shock this year. Yeah, Kane Hodder has been announced for Rock and Shock, which is super exciting. Oh, yeah. um, Kane Hodder and uh, Adrian King. Yes, yes, I'm eager to she speak hasn't been with there her for ten years about her Camp Crystal Lake wines. Ooh, I didn't know. Yeah, that was a yeah, thing. she has her oh. own own um, like line of of wines, uh, Crystal nice. Lake wines. So yeah, I'm very eager to see if I can get a, a quick moment with her to talk about some wine. That'd be pretty rad. Right? That would be really cool. Uh, maybe maybe give her some Von Nightmare Vineyard swag. Oh, yes. Right? That would be, that would be pretty cool. So, um, so we have some stuff coming up. We have a lot of stuff coming up. Um, we have a big uh, interview that I'm currently editing and putting together for the movie Derailed, which comes out Tuesday on VOD. So that Tuesday, August 6th. So, our episode will drop on the eighth. We are uh, we have interviewed Suzanne De Laurentis, who is the writer and producer, and Dale Fabregar, who is the director and writer. Um, so there was a, there's a lot of collaboration, and this is a long ass episode. This is like a two plus hour episode because yeah, we had but there's two a, amazing there's interviews. Some, right, there's some great content and some really cool stories, like really cool stories. And I strongly recommend people check this movie out. Yes, it's it's not your typical horror film. Uh, I believe you can find it on pretty much every platform, like iTunes and Amazon and what have you. Yeah, and you can get the physical copies. I think Walmart's going to have it. I think that's what we were talking about yep. the other day with Dale. Um, so yeah, like there's a lot of stuff coming up. We're going to be. I'm going to be super super busy. We're also going to all be this stuff. at Terrificon. Yep, next Saturday. August 9th, 10th, Friday, and 11th. Saturday, Sunday. Yep, yes. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That is at. Uh, Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Yes. So definitely come visit us. Val Kilmer will be there. Oh, really? Val Kilmer, Billy D. Williams. Uh, I'm hoping 
to get, uh, I have an Infinity Gauntlet, not like the super articulated one, but a really nice like foam core one that uh, Ash's sister got me for Christmas. And Ron Lim and Jim Starlin, who created Thanos and wrote the, 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 the Infinity Gauntlet, which, as you folks out there know, if you've listened to the show, is my all-time favorite storyline. So I'm hoping to get that uh, signed. I'm also... Uh, uh, I'm, I almost lost my train of thought. Um, there's some great voice actors that are going to be there as well, including Phil Lamar and Maurice LaMarche, which is super cool. Um, if you've ever watched... Uh, the Simpsons, Family Guy, Futurama, you've you've listened to these guys talk. And if you're a fan of Pulp Fiction, uh, Phil Lamar played Marvin. So you uh, can ask him about that. But um, yeah, there's going to be a ton of comic book writers. You already heard the ad that we played earlier in this episode for Terrificon. That's kind of the high-pitched guy that's talking. So if you're going to go, let us know. We'll meet up. We'll uh, we'll chat. We're going to be there with the Dorkening. So the Dorkening Network folks will be there. Uh, I'm not sure what the entire roster is of folks. I know Leo will be there. Uh, I believe Yo-Yo is going to be there one day. I'm going to be there. Yeah, we're going to be there. Hopefully she sounds a little better because she's got the voice thing that I always get. It's it's what? Vocal, vocal cord, cord fatigue. fatigue? Yeah. It's when your it's, throat it's really doesn't hurt, but you can't It's a great thing for speak. a podcaster to get. Yeah. But vocal cord fatigue. However, uh, like I said, I'm going to be really, really busy with a lot of stuff. And Ashes, you're going to be busy with a lot of stuff. We be some- prepared to see some uh, some more content. Not only uh, you know the YouTube channel, the, the, the social media, the... Um, the uh, whatchamacallit guys we're booming the website we're booming we have a couple of interviews lined up for august that are gonna blow you guys away we can't talk about them yet but they're gonna blow super you away secret oh but yeah so we're fun. really excited and we're super 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 stoked to have the opportunity to share all this stuff with you guys um so yeah like stay tuned we have some really crazy stuff and we're learning how to use our equipment which is even better so our episodes will sound better and we can our conduct our interviews better. Yeah. So I think on that note, because I still have to finish putting this together, I have less than a little over an hour to get it done. So it's out on Thursday. So I think we will see, see you, you next, next Thursday. Thursday.